Our scripture reading this morning, as you can see uh, in the bulletin, is from Isaiah chapter 9. We, uh, we are beginning this morning a four-week series of, of sermons that will help us, give us opportunity to reflect on the incarnation of Christ. So we'll look this morning at this great passage from uh, Isaiah Isaiah verses one, chapter nine, verses one through seven. So let's uh, let's give our careful attention here to God's word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden The staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. At various points in our lives as believers in Jesus Christ, we all experience, though we experience them often differently, uh, seasons of darkness. We, we experience times in which it seems that God is, is absent, that God has forgotten us, perhaps the feeling that God, though we know better, is against us. Times when we don't know where our hope lies. And ultimately, this is because we live in between the times, in between the two advents of Christ, His first coming and His second coming, which is still future for us. We've already entered into the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ, but the kingdom hasn't been consummated. It hasn't come in its fullness and glory. We've been delivered from the guilt and power of sin through the death of Christ, but we have not yet been delivered from the presence of sin. So we wait. You wait. I wait. We wait with eager expectation. We still sing, Come thou long-expected Jesus. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Ransom captive Israel. Not because we believe that His death and resurrection were ineffective, but because we know that there still is one great event on God's calendar and we wait for the second appearing of Jesus Christ. And as we wait, we feel, you feel, don't you, the tension 
of the Christian life. Having Christ, having all that's in Him, and yet still waiting, still struggling, still experiencing those seasons of darkness, struggle, trials, questions, fears, doubts. Well, here in Isaiah 9, God speaks exactly into this kind of situation. God is speaking through His prophet into a time of deep darkness in the life of His people. It begins with darkness there in verse 1. The promise that there will be uh, the, the, the Assyrian Empire here in the 8th century B.C. will come, and they will, as the Scripture says, bring into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, these two tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel. Isaiah is prophesying about a dark, dark time in the life of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ at this point in her history. But into this impending darkness, God is speaking a promise of light and of life. The people who walked in darkness will see a great light. God is saying to His people, there will be a time when the light will overtake the darkness completely, when all of the conflict that His people know will be crushed underfoot forever, when, as Revelation 11 says, and as many of you know from Handel's Messiah, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. That day is coming, God says to His people. He says that to you today. That as a believer in Jesus Christ, experiencing the tension, the, the struggle of this life in between the times, between the two comings of Christ, like two poles of your existence, God is still saying, the light has dawned in Jesus Christ, and that day is coming, my child, when all of the light will drive out the darkness, when the kingdom of this world will be all the kingdom of Christ. And there will be no more tension. There will be no more waiting, no more sighing, no more longing, no more faith because it will all be sight. So for God's people, darkness is a reality. The Bible never minimizes that. Darkness is a reality, but it is not the ultimate reality. However dark it may seem, God will never leave His people in the darkness. God will never forsake you. And you see this, Isaiah shows this, if we're paying attention, in verse 4. When he refers to the victory of Gideon. God uh, speaks of Gideon's victory, rather the Lord's victory, over the Midianites. And what he's pointing back to, you can read about in Judges chapter 6. For seven years, the Midianites are hounding the people of God, oppressing them, taunting them, stealing their food, stealing their land, destroying their property. The, the language of the Scripture is actually they, they for seven years overpowered Israel. Had God forgotten them? Seven years is a long time. What would you think? No, God hadn't forgotten them. The cries of His people go up to the Lord, and He delivers Gideon to them, who will be a judge, a sort of figure that points ahead to the victory that will be given to us through Christ. And Gideon leads the army of Israel, but it's not much of an army, is it? Because God is showing that the victory is His. Gideon leads the charge, but it happens in such a way it was clear that the Lord had won the victory. So here in Isaiah, Isaiah is reminding them, do you remember what God has done for you? Do you remember how He's delivered you from your enemies, how He's brought light into the darkness? And if you think about the story of Gideon, that was literally true. God brings light into darkness. 
God rescues his people. God does not forget you. God does not abandon you. And he reminds them of this from this story, by this story from their history. So Isaiah is saying, and the Spirit is saying still through this scripture today, even in the deepest darkness, even in the most severe agony, even in the greatest distress, you have reason to hope because the light has dawned in Jesus Christ and it is coming in full glory. The Lord has rescued you in the past, so he will deliver you in the future. That's, that's just the very basic hope of the Christian life. God has redeemed you, and he will fully redeem you. And so you always have to reason from what he has said and what he has done into the future. But you know you tend to do it the other way around, don't you? You tend to look at your present experience, the darkness, and you reason on the basis of that experience on into a darker future. But God, God's always saying, no, you're, you're, you're going about it all wrong. I know what you're experiencing now. I've never minimized the darkness that, that you feel as my people. But don't you remember what I've done? Don't you see the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead? Don't you believe me when I say that he is reigning as the king and that he's coming again to live between those two times calls us to rejoicing in what he's done and expecting what he yet will do. And that's what Isaiah is pointing to. And in fact, he's so certain of this that he speaks in the past tense. Verses 1 through 7 speak of their darkness in the past tense. But he's talking about something that hasn't even happened yet. They're, they're going to they're gonna be going into exile, into captivity. But Isaiah says, oh, it's, it's like it's in the past tense. And, and this coming redemption of God he speaks of in the present tense, even though it's future. I think we don't need to miss that because what Isaiah is getting at is that the triumph of God's grace, the power of his grace is such that even what he hasn't yet done for you is as good as done. It's as good as done. So reliable is God. So sure and powerful is his grace to you in Jesus Christ. So as real as the darkness is, and I I know that we can all be faced with it and are in various ways. This is not the ultimate reality, but it's hard to keep that straight, isn't it? You, you look at uh, your struggles with temptation. In your struggles with temptation and sin, do you not at times just feel worn out by it? God, deliver me from this. Do you not ever feel as if, as if it's pressing in on you and you cry out to God for deliverance? And you're tempted to think that that is the greatest reality, is your sin and your temptation? But it's not. Or what about the struggles that so many of us have in our lives, whether they're financial stresses or health problems or loneliness, nagging fears and doubts that we can't explain or shake? And those can press in on us, and we feel as if those are the ultimate reality. And again, God presses that back in His Word and says, no, it's not the ultimate reality. But rather, there's a greater reality, and it's found in the promise of this child. It's found in this birth announcement in verse 6. For to us a child is born. For to us a son is given. So we have this very unusual birth announcement that comes 750 years before the birth. And it tells of a, a child who will be born. It points to his humanity. But it also tells of a describes him as a son, that is a son of the one who sends him, 
his points to his deity. And Isaiah describes the character of this child with four titles that he gives us in verse 6. And I really want us to focus on those this morning, to spend time considering these titles because they show us, they take us right into the character of who Jesus is for his people, for you. And so first what Isaiah points out is there in the second half of verse 6 that his name, his character is to be called Wonderful Counselor. There are two words combined here. And the first is literally the word wonder. It's translated wonderful, and that's fine, but literally it's the word wonder. It's a word that gets used in the Old Testament to talk about a miracle, to talk about the miraculous, wondrous things that God has done uh, for His people. It's actually also a word that God uses to, to introduce Himself, to describe just how unimaginably great he is. It's a very interesting encounter also in the book of Judges. In chapter 13, when a man named Manoah, who we find is the fa- becomes the father of Samson, another deliverer in Israel. And this angel of the Lord appears to Manoah, but Manoah is not quite sure who he's dealing with. So he asks a question eventually, uh, uh, by the way, who are you? What is your name? And the angel of the Lord, which is the Lord himself, says, Why do you ask me what my name is? Do you not see that my name is Wonder? Can you not tell by my presence with you that the wonder of my character, that is my name? And that's the word that Isaiah uses here to name our Savior, to name the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what his name will be, Wonder. Wonder, and the name fits, because there's no greater wonder than this, that God would become man without ceasing to be God, and that he would do that in order to redeem those who were his enemies. And so Jesus Christ is a wonder. This is why he is wonderful, Isaiah says. But then he couples another word with this first title, wonderful counselor. Remember the situation in Isaiah 9 is darkness. Now, what do you and I need? What do people need in the midst of the darkness? You don't need to be left alone. You don't need to be told what to do. You need someone to enter into the darkness to help you, to lead you, to take you by the hand, to guide you. That's exactly what this is pointing to. This word counselor means really what it does when we use the word. Someone to advise, someone to help. Someone to speak into the confusion and offer help. And that's what this Savior does. He comes as the one who is a wonder, but he also comes to counsel, to advise, to lead, to help, to guide. And here's Isaiah's point. Because he is the counselor, he has come to help, to rescue, to deliver, to lead. And because he is wonderful, divine, marvelous, it means he's able to help. I think some of you, some of you find yourselves in the darkness and you act functionally, whatever you might believe, you act like there is no one to help. You act like there is no hope, like there is no one who's there. And not only our culture in the West, but the church in America is racked. People are racked with depression, despair, anxiety, fear, hopelessness. And yet Isaiah says, oh, people of God, 
one who has come who is a wonderful counselor, who is in and of himself God, who is majestic and glorious and unspeakably great, and he has come to help, to speak into your life by his word, to lead you, to guide you, to rescue you. So why would you live as if that were not true? Some of you in the midst of the darkness deal with the darkness by almost an obsession with fixing your problems, with covering the darkness with bad advice, bad counsel, whatever you might find on the bookshelves or on the TV or on the radio, and you'll begin to listen to anything, but you won't listen to the voice of the counselor. Some of you try to escape just into pleasure, into entertainment. But you know what the common denominator of all of these is? We tend to live as if the wonderful counselor has not come. But Jesus, Isaiah tells us, is the wonderful counselor. He's the eternal son of God. He's the one about whom Paul says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden up in him, stored up in him, and they're for you. And he's for you. He knows all the things that only God knows because he is God. He has all knowledge. He has all wisdom. He knows everything. He knows everything about you. He knows your struggle. He knows exactly what you need. This is who Jesus is, and he has come to be our counselor. It's a tremendous word of encouragement. In and of himself, he is a wonder. He has become counselor in his love for his people to help you, to guide you. So the questions, are you trusting him? In your experience of the darkness, are you listening to Him? Are you seeking out His Word, contemplating it, meditating on it, listening to what He says, trusting Him, believing Him? Are you casting your cares upon the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that He cares for you as the wonderful Counselor? So Isaiah presents Him as wonderful Counselor, and then he continues with this second title, Mighty God. Now, in Isaiah chapter 10, this is how Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord Himself, introduces Himself, the mighty God. So, who is this child who's born? Who is this son who's given? Jesus is Yahweh, Jehovah, God Himself. This takes us right to the heart of the mystery and the glory of Christmas, that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, is born as a human baby, develops in the fetus, as a fetus in the womb of the Virgin Mary, is fed by her in the womb, is delivered by her at his birth, is nursed as an infant, all the while still remaining the eternal Son of God who created that woman in that womb. That the Son of God becomes a child, but since He is mighty God, He's fully able to do what He was sent by the Father to do. He is mighty to save, mighty to rescue, mighty to help, mighty to deliver, to cleanse, to redeem. And so we're being told, here is a child, a king who you can trust completely because He is able to do what He has come to do. There is no deficiency in him. There's no weakness in his work. There's nothing lacking in him. 
Jesus, Jesus had to be the child born to us, but he had to be the son, the divine son, the mighty God. Now, I, I bet most of us, and you might even hear this right now and almost be tuning it out. Yeah, yeah. I bet most of us have not seriously thought about this, maybe ever, certainly not recently, to actually stop and ponder why, why did Jesus, why did the Savior have to be both God and man? Why why was it that way? He had to be God. He had to be God, but he also had to be man. Why? Why? He had to be fully man, a real man, one with all the common properties and weaknesses of human nature without sin. Why is that? Because since death came through a real man, life had to come through a real man. Now let me warn you about something. Be very careful about those who would say that Adam was not a real person. It's a compromise of the gospel. It's a compromise of the whole structure of redemption. Because the whole logic of history and of redemptive history is that just as sin and death entered the world through one man, through his disobedience, so through the one man, Jesus Christ's obedience, came life and righteousness and peace. So why did the Savior have to be human? Because Adam, a real man, sinned against God broke his law, and as a result, dragged everyone with him into ruin and into sin and into death. And so if anyone's going to be saved, a man, a real true man, must obey the law of God perfectly, which Jesus has done, and must pay the penalty that we deserve for our sin, which is death, which he has done. So death came through a man, so life must come through a man. But he had to be God because no mere man could do this. No mere man could withstand the judgment of God upon himself. Jesus is no mere man. He is mighty God. He is God Almighty, which makes him a perfect, sufficient, powerful Savior, which means that if you are in Jesus Christ, your salvation is perfect and eternal and, and will not fail. Your sins, your personal particular sins, things you've done, things you've left undone, require nothing less than the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ and the perfect sacrifice of his body on the cross. The shedding of the blood of the Son of God and nothing less was necessary for our salvation. And this he has done for us by clothing himself in human flesh. This is how great our sin is. This, Isaiah is saying, is how great our God is. And then he goes on and gives this third title, Everlasting Father. The one who is a wonderful counselor and who is the mighty God is also called Everlasting Father. When we say that God is infinite, we mean that he is, there are no limits on him. When we say that God is eternal, what we're saying is that he is infinite with respect to time. He's not limited by time. He has always been. He always will be. There's never been a time when God did not exist. There's never been a time when Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, did not exist. There's never been a time when he will not exist, but at, point, at a point in time, in the fullness of time, he took on human flesh. He is everlasting. He is God. 
And not only is he everlasting and infinite and eternal, but it says here that he's also a father to us. Now look, Isaiah is not in any way confusing. In the Trinity, there's the Father and the Son and the Spirit, three distinct persons. We don't confuse them or mix them up, and Isaiah's not doing that. He's saying that in his love for us, the Son of God loves us as a father loves his children. He comes to us and loves us with an eternal love, an eternal fatherly love. So, see, it's not just that Jesus is wonderful counselor, mighty God, but he is from eternity to eternity a father to his children. Do you realize what this means for you if you know Christ, if you're his? It means he, he loves you with an eternal love. His love for you never had a beginning. There, there was no alpha point to the love of Jesus for you. You, you cannot comprehend that. That there's no end to his love for you. It's an eternal love that, that He cares for you eternally. In the sense that a father in love and in tenderness provides, knows your need, gives it to you. This is who Jesus is. It means He's made you His child, which you will be for, for eternity. He'll never let you go. And so the Savior is everlasting Father to His children. And how did He accomplish this? The infinite became subject to time. The unchangeable became changeable. The divine became human. God became man. And he did this without ceasing to be infinite and eternal and unchangeable and divine. His divine nature assumed, took on human nature so that two distinct natures Two perfect, distinct natures exist forever in the one man, Jesus Christ. As you think about his second coming and what it will be like to be with him, sometimes that's confusing and maybe frightening for you. But think of it this way. How will you see God? Because Jesus Christ, the God-man, has a body, a glorified body. He is in the one person, God and man, for you forever, and it's his face you will see. He's eternal Father for you, for His people. Do you see what kind of Savior He is? That nothing He's ever done for you will ever wear out or become weak? He's perfect. He, he's God. He loves you with a perfect divine love. The love of a Father will never turn you loose, will never let you go, will never leave you or forsake you. So we're told here He is everlasting Father that this is his name. This is who he is. And I think if this doesn't absolutely thrill you, I don't know what will. That the eternal Son of God, because of the love of the Father, loves you eternally and is a Father to you forever. And then Isaiah says, fourthly, finally, he is the Prince of Peace. It's probably an allusion to Solomon, David's son, the great king of Israel. Solomon's name means peace. He was the king of peace. He was the king under whose reign God brought uh, unprecedented peace, rest, blessing to the people of Israel. Enemies were defeated. God's people experienced peace under Solomon's rule. Isaiah is saying there is a greater king than Solomon who's coming. There's a greater peace that is coming under him. And we can see that in verse 7. He will sit on the throne of David, and his kingly rule, his dominion, his government, and his peace 
will never end. He will establish his kingdom and will uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now, in the Old Testament, David's throne is God's throne. First Chronicles 29, Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of David his father. That's Jesus' throne. And he is on it now, reigning and ruling over the world. It's hard to see this sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes you want to say he's not on that throne. Sometimes you're tempted to believe that he's not on that throne. But there is a throne in heaven, and I can tell you with absolute certainty, it is not empty. But Christ is there, seated because he's finished the work, ruling as the prince of peace. And ultimately what Isaiah is saying is his kingdom is a kingdom of peace. Jesus is the prince of peace and he establishes peace. But how does he do that? How has Jesus become the prince of peace? How has his kingdom of peace begun? Well, Isaiah tells us later in his prophecy in chapter 53. It says, he, speaking of the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the meaning behind Christmas, behind Advent, that God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world to remove all that had destroyed its peace and to put in place peace, wholeness, restoration, perfection between God and man and between people because of the the great love of God for his people. So it's a peace that has two aspects. It's an objective peace. I'm no longer at war with God. He's no longer at war with me because my sins have been removed. And therefore, there's this subjective peace, this assurance, this rest, this joy that comes from knowing that I'm at peace with God. How does he do this? By coming into the world, by assuming human nature, making his dwelling among us being despised and rejected, being a man of sorrows, being acquainted with grief, familiar with suffering, by bearing our iniquities. Jesus establishes his kingdom of peace this way. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peace then has been purchased. It is finished The sacrifice has been accepted. God's wrath has been satisfied at the cross. The alienation has been removed. 
the bondage has been shattered. And in Christ Jesus, and only in Christ Jesus, there is cleansing. There is safety from the wrath of God. There is restoration, reconciliation. There is redemption, freedom from bondage. This is how Jesus has established peace. This is why he came. Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, said this, He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in the manger that we might lie in paradise. He came down from heaven that he might bring us to heaven. And what was all this but love? If our heart be not rocks, this love of Christ should affect us. Behold, love that surpasses knowledge. And then Watson says something I think is beautiful. Christ incarnate, the Son of God become man, taken on flesh. Christ incarnate is nothing but love covered in flesh. And in that love, Jesus Christ has established his kingdom, and it is a kingdom of peace. He has done it in his first advent. He will perfect it in his second coming. And that means that we can look back and rejoice. And that means that even in the darkness, we can look forward in hope, in certain hope, because our Prince of Peace, this wonderful child, has become the risen and exalted King. And by simple faith in Him, perhaps some of you this morning have walked into this service and you don't know Christ. You're, you're outside of His kingdom looking in. You're wondering what this is about. Perhaps you've stayed away. You've kept your distance because of your doubts, your questions. But what God gives us here, what God gives you here in Isaiah 9 is a very clear look at who Jesus is, and it's like this. If you're standing in the wintertime in some awfully cold place where lakes actually freeze, and you're trying to figure out if you can step out onto it, I don't care how confident you are. If that ice is thin, you're going in. It doesn't matter how confident you are. But I don't care how frightened you are either. Because if that ice is thick, it will hold your weight. And what Isaiah 9 is giving us here is this thick ice of the gospel. The thick ice of Christ himself. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting father. Prince of Peace. Perhaps you've come in here today not knowing Christ, wondering about Him, keeping your distance. But I can assure you this is the thick ice. He is the thick ice on which you can stand. And however weak your faith is, you will not fall. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and they shall call, and, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
rely completely on him, trust in him, delight in his greatness, because you can be sure that God will completely save. And that doesn't just mean save you from your sin, but completely deliver you all the way to the end, everyone who comes to him through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the greatness of our Savior, the greatness of this wonderful child who has become Lord in Christ. And we pray that you would exalt him, that you would give us grace to exalt him, to trust him, to trust him, to rely upon him, not to doubt, not to be afraid, but to cast ourselves fully upon him and know that he will bear us up, that he will hold us, that he will keep us, that he will save us. And Lord, you've given us emblems of that here at the table as we come to it. Strengthen us, we pray. Thank you. We praise you, our Lord, for this great thing that you have done, sending your son into this world, the God-man. We pray that you would lift him up in our hearts and in our lives in our church, in this place. We pray in his name. Amen.